Um, thank you, everybody, for um, being here today, and thank you for the invitation to come and talk. So um, today I'll talk to you a little bit about CML. I'm um, an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, and I'm the clinical director of the Leukemia Service at Mass General, and my clinical and research focus is in myeloproliferative neoplasms and in chronic myeloid leukemia. I have um, these disclosures. So today's um, learning objectives, um, I will summarize the impact of patient monitoring, patient adherence, and therapy discontinuation on long-term patient care in regard to clinical pathway development. I'll also apply evidence base to discuss um, tyrosine kinase selection for CML patients um, and how to select tyrosine kinases based on disease phase, treatment history, genetic mutational profile, and patient comorbidities. I'll also talk about how to integrate clinical safety, efficacy, and cost effectiveness and present some data on novel and emergent therapies in CML. So just in a little bit of background, CML is a leukemia that accounts for about 15 to 20 percent of adults in, I mean, of leukemia in adults. Um, however, the prevalence is increasing as therapy has um, improved significantly in the last couple of decades, and it's projected that over 180,000 patients will live with CML in the year 2050 in the United States. The median age of diagnosis is in the 50s. Um, Untreated, CML follows a triphasic course with chronic phase followed by accelerated phase followed by blast phase disease. The majority of patients are going to be diagnosed in chronic phase. And I think what's most remarkable about CML is that the prognosis with TKI therapy is similar to um, the general population. So a little bit of history. In 1951, William Damaschek, who is also the father of chronic um, myeloproliferative neoplasms, described an entity called gra chronic granulocytic leukemia. Now, obviously, we call it chronic myeloid leukemia. Uh, in 1959, two investigators in Philadelphia, UPenn and Fox Chase, identified uh, an abnormality in the chromosomes of patients with CML. And this was the first time that a cytogenetic abnormality was consistently identified with uh, neoplasia. We now call that abnormality the Philadelphia chromosome, and we know that that happens from a translocation of chromosome 9 and 22, leading to a fusion protein called the BCR able. CML is a unique disease because um, BCR able is the sole genetic mutation that occurs in these patients in the vast majority of times. There really is no CML without BCR able. So if you suspect that somebody has CML and you don't identify um, a BCR able, then it's likely another myeloproliferative neoplasm. In some instances, there's unusual um, BCR able proteins, but for the most part, you don't have um, CML without BCR able. Although there are, whenever I talk about BCR able in clinic, Siri turns on. Um, which is good. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, although mutations in the ABLE1 kinase domain can occur, they really rarely occur at, um, at presentation. So it's not necessary to check for ABLE1 kinase mutations in a patient that you're meeting for the first time if they're presenting in chronic phase. So CML is really a unique disease. We have excellent therapies. And um, 2001, when Gleevec was approved, was really a watershed moment in oncology. 
Um, CML used to be the most common indication for bone marrow transplantation, and now it's one of the least common indications for bone marrow transplantation. Um, and it became a disease that can be treated with um, a medication, with just one pill. In 2019, in addition to having imatinib or Gleevec, we have three other drugs that can be used in first line, um, including desatinib, nilotinib, and bosutinib. And we also have panatinib for um, more advanced disease. So although we're very fortunate and that we have excellent medications to treat this disease, um, there are some remaining challenges. One includes really living with a chronic illness and dealing with the side effects of these medications. So although they're just pills, they still can be very difficult to take. The other is um, resistance, and last is cost, which is not an insignificant part of treating this disease. So a few things that I'll talk about throughout our talk today. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we have four drugs that we can use for upfront therapy, but it's not always straightforward to know which drug to select in the upfront setting. Um, it's also important to know, and, and I'll discuss this a lot, how to monitor a patient to ensure success. And then um, we also need to know when to recognize that another TKI is needed. And lastly, we'll talk about um, who can safely discontinue their TKI. So first, I'll start with a case of a woman I've been taking care of for the last couple of years. She's a lovely 68-year-old woman that has multiple medical conditions, including diabetes, high blood pressure, coronary artery disease, chronic kidney disease, um, and she first presented with retinal hemorrhages. Her white count was 72,000. She was slightly anemic, um, and her platelets were preserved. So what is the right drug for her? And her, her spleen was not palpable on exam. So she, um, before talking about which drug to select, I just wanted to talk about um, the efficacy of these drugs, mostly to point out, I'm not going to go through each individual column, but um, there is no difference in overall survival with the different TKIs. So undoubtedly, nilotinib and desatinib will get people into remission faster than imatinib. Um, however, that initial um, deep response or that initial speed in response has not yet translated to a difference in overall survival. Um, so the rates of cytogenetic remission may be a little bit lower for an imatinib compared to nilotinib and desatinib, um, but, but the rates of survival at um, five years are, are the same or long-term are the same. I guess one thing to point out is that perhaps with imatinib there's a slightly increased um, rate of transformation to accelerated or blast phase disease compared to the other TKIs. But again, that has the small numbers. It's an infrequent event. And with um, bosutinib, since it's the newest uh, drug on the, on the armamentarium, we don't have such long-term data. And then I just wanted to point out that although these drugs are incredibly efficacious in first line, there really is a bit of a change in, in their efficacy in second line, especially if the reason why you're selecting a second drug is due to resistance and not to intolerance. And so just to point out, you know, second-line progression-free survival with desatinib or nilotinib is in the order of 40 to 50 percent, which is really quite different than in first line. So how do we pick our first tyrosine kinase inhibitor? So... The right answer, and you know what the NCCN guidelines say, is that you can use any of these drugs. 
what I like to do is just think about the patient, think about their medical comorbidities, and think about what your endpoints are for the patient. And so if you have patients that have pulmonary disease or patients that have congestive heart failure and they often get admitted with pleural effusions or fluid overload, um, dasatinib is probably not, not the right drug for them or not the drug that I would pick as first line. Um, patients that have chronic G- GI issues um, or have abnormal liver function tests at baseline, Bosutinib is probably not the first drug that I would select. Patients that have cardiovascular comorbidities, especially patients with peripheral vascular disease or coronary artery disease, patients with arrhythmias, um, I wouldn't select nilotinib. Patients that have had prior um, also cardiovascular disease or history of um, any clotting events, I wouldn't select panatinib, not that you would select panatinib in first line anyway. Um, And then patients that have lots of comorbid conditions that are elderly um, and have cardiovascular comorbidity especially, I generally go to imatinib first. And so, um, anyway, those are some of the considerations. So in addition to selecting the drug based on the patient and based on the patient's comorbidities, oftentimes, unfortunately, we also have to make decisions based on what the patient is able to um, get covered by their insurance. Um, And so we sort of have to balance efficacy and cost. In general, we're pretty fortunate in CML that all of these drugs are really effective. And so when you have to pick one drug because the insurance will be more likely to cover one drug versus another, or there's a better patient assistance program for one patient based on their insurance than another, at least you can feel confident that you're not compromising efficacy. And I think that's important. Now, in um, 2016, generic imatinib was introduced And in the United States, the cost of generic imatinib has not yet come down significantly compared to brand name imatinib. Um, In other parts of the world, the cost of generic imatinib is significantly lower than the cost of brand name imatinib, um, and that's significantly lower than um, the second generation drugs. But that hasn't yet happened here. Obviously, there's a potential benefit to generic imatinib in that it'll be significantly less costly. The cost of these drugs is significant and has not come down um, since the approval of these drugs, you know, of imatinib in particular in 2001. One potential downside is, you know, there's different formulations. Just anecdotally, my experience with some patients on generic imatinib is that they don't always tolerate it the same way um, as brand name. Um, And so I think it remains to be seen how the introduction of generic imatinib will really impact the way that we take care of our patients with CML. There have been some cost-effectiveness studies trying to see if it's um, beneficial to start with generic imatinib in terms of cost. Um, and, and And they're trying to weigh that against the potential of more patients discontinuing Uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitors when they start the second-generation drugs. But I think that those analyses really are incomplete yet because we don't yet know what the price of the generic imatinib will really be. But I think that that'll be interesting, and I think that that'll um, potentially really change the way that we treat our patients. Um, And I think we need to have more studies to to help inform if that is um, the right approach for every patient. Um, And so potentially in the future, I can envision that we would you know, start with generic imatinib, um, and then if our patients don't meet their landmarks of treatment, then we can switch them to the second-generation drugs. Um, And I would say that for patients that have high-risk features of disease at diagnosis, 
uh, that's unlikely to be the right strategy because those patients should really start with a second-generation drug. So anyway, things to look forward to in the future. So case continued. Um, my patient was started on imatinib based on what I mentioned before. You know, she had a lot of comorbid conditions. Unfortunately, at one year, her PCR on the international scale was 3.5%. And we want um, the PCR at, w- at one year to be less than 1%. So she hasn't achieved a major molecular remission, major molecular remission being defined as a PCR of less than 1%, I mean, at less than 0.1%. So at this point, and this is a question where um, you don't answer on your phone, you can just um, raise your hands if you want to volunteer. Um, so do you perform a bone marrow biopsy to see if she's in a cytogenetic remission? Do you obtain ABL1 kinase mutational testing? Do you stay on the same therapy? Um, or do you do A and B? <laughs> and if I don't have on, any volunteers, I'll let you know what happened in the next couple of slides. Go ahead. See? Yeah, sounds good. Anybody else? So she, she actually stayed on imatinib. Um, but I don't think it's wrong to, um, to be worried at that, at that stage of disease. I would say that just um, imatinib usually takes a little bit longer to get into um, a deep remission, but, um, but this is definitely a patient that, that, I, that I was worried about. So in order to know, you know when to switch therapy and who to worry about, we need to know how to define success. So the NCCN guidelines have very clearly delineated this, and I refer to them often myself. And so at different time points, we want to be at different places. So really at three months, your patients should be in a complete hematologic remission, and that PCR should be close to 10% or less. Patients that, um, that don't reach that, you should be worried about at six months. Again, they have to be less than 10% on their PCR. At 12 months, they should be less than 1%. And then beyond 12 months, um, ideally, they should be in an MMR or just remain less than 1%. You always worry about patients that have reached these milestones and then lost those milestones, so if they've lost their response. And in addition to meeting the the milestones of therapy, they also need to be tolerating therapy and affording therapy, which sounds obvious but doesn't happen all the time. So what are some reasons for failure? It's, it's interesting, you know, I'm used to being an oncologist. Uh, my patients are usually very motivated and, and really, you know, adhere to all of the therapies that are prescribed, even though sometimes that's very challenging. But the further away the patient moves from their initial diagnosis, the more um, they lose the fear of what this disease really is. And really, adherence is, is a problem. You know, this is a drug that patients have to take every single day of their lives. And so non-adherence is really an issue, and it's really the first thing that um, should be looked at. So the other, the other thing that's important to, to take into account is um, drug interactions. And so although theoretically drug interactions could m- make um, the, the TKI not as effective, that hasn't really been shown in the literature. But what I think actually can happen is that drug-drug interactions can make the toxicity of the TKI worse and then increase the likelihood of the patient not being adherent with medication. Another real reason for, for um, lack of success is, is cost, uh, also intolerance. You know, these drugs, for some patients, they're incredibly well tolerated. They don't even feel that they're taking a medication, but for some patients, they really have debilitating side effects. 
And then, of course, we deal with resistance and with relapse. So my patient did not want to have a bone marrow biopsy. Um, mutational testing was normal, um, and she remained on imatinib. She wanted to give it a few more months to see what it would do. Unfortunately, at three months, her PCR was unchanged, um, so she was started on desatinib, uh, 100 milligrams daily. At three months, her PCR was 0.7%. So how do, we how do we navigate TKI resistance, and how do we think about it? Um, like I mentioned before, we have to ensure that there are no drug-drug interactions, that patients are actually filling their prescription and can afford therapy. And then how do we define TKI resistance? So primary resistance is failure to meet the landmarks of therapy at specific time points. Um, failure to reach MMR or major molecular remission is not infrequent. So it occurs in up to 25 to 40% of imatinib-treated patients and bosutinib-treated patients and occurs less frequently but also in patients with desatinib and nilotinib. Relapse, um, so also you can think about it as secondary resistance, is loss of therapeutic effect and disease progression while in a TKI that was previously effective. Um, and the NCCN defines it as any sign of loss of response, defined as either hematologic or cytogenetic relapse. So if you have a patient that was previously very well controlled and they have a one-log increase in their BCR-able transcript with a loss of MMR, so if they're still in MMR, you don't worry. But if they've lost their MMR, um, that's considered relapse. So when do we check for an ABLE1 kinase mutation? So if you have a patient that's in chronic phase that you just met, um, if, they're achieve, uh, if they're achieving their milestones, you don't have to check uh, mutation. But if they haven't um, met their land, uh, milestones, if they've lost response, if their disease is progressing, then that's a, new, that's a good time to check mutational analysis and to select a tyrosine kinase inhibitor based on those results. For new diagnosis patients in general, there's no reason to do mutational testing, and with the exception of patients that present with accelerated or blast phase disease, which thankfully is rare. So here's a chart. And I have to say that I treat a lot of CML, but I do not have this memorized, except for maybe a few. Um, so, so the chart is here. It's also in the NCCN guidelines. I refer to it all the time. Um, but, but anyway, it's just helpful to know which um, tyrosine kinase to select. So then really an, a more common thing than having mutations in enable one kinase is intolerance. And, and this is why it's so important, I think, to understand the side effect profile of each of the drugs to help, you know, not just with selecting the drugs up front, but then really to help patients stay on therapy. And I would say, you know, CML patients appear like they're doing well. They, um, their blood counts can be pretty normal. Um, and then they look normal, you know, but, but these patients can really suffer from a lot of chronic toxicities. And I would say that in the first three months of therapy, those toxicities are much, much worse, and they tend to get better over time. Um, so in the first three months, I really have the patients come uh, see me in clinic pretty frequently, uh, not only to check blood counts and make sure that they're tolerating therapy from that perspective, but to really to help navigate the side effects that tend to be, like I said, much worse at the beginning. So with imatinib, we have fluid retention, fatigue, rash, myalgias, lots of GI side effects. 
The satinib obviously can cause a lot of those similar side effects, but specifically can cause, cause pleural effusions and rarely can cause um, pulmonary artery hypertension. Nilotinib can lead to vascular events, peripheral vascular disease, worsening in hyperglycemia, QTC prolongation, and rash. Bosutinib, particularly at initiation of therapy, it can cause a lot of diarrhea, and it's really important to educate patients about the fact that they can have a lot of diarrhea at the beginning and to manage that um, very proactively, because otherwise most patients will not be able to remain on therapy. But once they've overcome those few first months of therapy, I find that it's a pretty well-tolerated drug. And then um, panatinib, um, as you all may know, it has it's been associated with a lot of thrombotic events, vascular occlusion, um, CHF, hepatotoxicity, um, and rash. And I would say that in pancreatitis, I would say that all of these drugs together, one of the things that they have in common is that they really cause a lot of fatigue. That, that's a, probably the most debilitating chronic low-grade side effect that uh, most of my patients have with these drugs. So my patient did well, but unfortunately she called me one day sounding very, very short of breath. She got admitted to the hospital, and this was her chest X-ray. And this is a little bit small, unfortunately, but um, the Spricel package insert has a really nice algorithm for monitoring or managing pleural effusions. But just to say, um, the first thing to do is grade the pleural effusion. If it's grade one, two, not very severe, you interrupt the drug and you wait for it to resolve. Once it resolves, if it was really not that severe, you can start at the same dose. If it happens again, then you can start at a lower dose. If you have a patient that has grade three, four pleural effusion, you stop. If, um, if the, the pleural effusion doesn't resolve within a week of treatment, you can consider obviously diuresis or short, court, short, short course of um, corticosteroids. Um, and then you can restart the drug at a lower dose. So I usually do 70 milligrams, but you can do 50 milligrams as well. Um, and obviously if that recurs, then that patient can't be on disatinib anymore. And although pleural effusions are quite common with dasatinib, the vast majority of patients that get a pleural effusion on dasatinib are able to remain on the drug long term. So unfortunately, she ended up getting um, two pretty significant pleural effusions. So we had to. Um, um, so so what do we do now? In this case, it's really not selecting in second line. It's kind of selecting in third line. But um, in general, the, the same paradigm applies. So if a person is on imatinib and they have resistance to imatinib, then you have the other three drugs to pick from. In the past, and you may find some literature that suggests increasing the dose of imatinib from 400 to 800, but truthfully, that's not very well tolerated. And nowadays, when we have so many other drugs to select, that wouldn't be the, my first approach unless for some reason, you know, the patient really can't. Um, take any of the other drugs or you don't have access to the other drugs. If the person is on a second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor, then I would select another second-generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor. I wouldn't go to imatinib based on mutational profile, or if there's no mutation identified, then I would just choose the other second-generation drug. And then the setting of the T315i mutation is really different than all of the other mutations. So if a patient has a T315i mutation, the only drug available for that patient is panatinib. And in the right clinical setting, this is a time where I think um, the conversation should start about a bone marrow transplant. So panatinib is an incredibly efficacious drug, but I don't think we know yet if patients can really remain on panatinib lifelong. And so I think it's at least worth discussing transplant with these patients.
when it comes to intolerance, if the reason to switch from one drug to another is intolerance, then really any TKI with a different side effect profile is, um, is an acceptable choice. So now switching gears and something that's kind of exciting and that I think was surprising to a lot of uh, people is TKI discontinuation. So now that we've been using the tyrosine kinase inhibitors for, for many years, we know there's some patients that really go into excellent remissions. Um, and there's a mounting body of evidence that has um, led to the opinion of the NCCN guidelines that it is now safe to discontinue TKIs in, in well-selected patients. And I think that's really the most important thing to know, that we know that TKI discontinuation is safe. So you can stop the drug, and then once you restart the drug, patients will go back into the great remissions that they had before. There's no reason to change from one TKI to another. Um, and I think that's really the, the most important thing to keep in mind. But discontinuing a TKI is not that easy either. Um, and that's because, you know, some of these patients maybe are patients that we're now seeing twice a year because they're in such good remissions. Now they really have to get blood work done to check for their BCR able transcript levels in the first year really every month, and then it's every two months. So it's fairly frequent visits because obviously you don't want to take a patient that's doing wonderfully and then have them really relapse with, you know, accelerated or blast phase disease. That would be a terrible outcome. Um, and so I think it's important to have patients that are reliable, that are willing to do that. And I've definitely had patients that are doing so well on their drug, uh, on their, you know, their TKI, that they prefer to just stay on what they're on and not do the monthly visits. Um, so what, what ensures success? So we know that the, you know, 50 to 60% of patients will relapse, and really many of those relapse right away in the first couple of months, even if they had undetectable disease before. Um, we know that the longer the patient has been in remission and the deeper that duration of remission, the higher the likelihood of success. Patients that had low-risk low um, SOCAL score at diagnosis also have a higher likelihood of success. Um, and so the um, NCCN guidelines are here. Obviously, I'm not going to go through all of that, but just to say that patients are candidate for discontinuation if they've been on a tyrosine kinase inhibitor for at least three years in an MR 4.0, which is 0 0.01 or greater, um, for the last two years. Um, patients can't have a history of accelerated or blast phase disease. And like I mentioned before, patients really need to be willing to come um, and get their transcript levels checked fairly frequently. So kind of in summary, on a TKI for three years, MR4 for at least two years, and they really require frequent follow-up. So just a few things that I've sort of mentioned throughout the talk, but I just wanted to spend a minute um, emphasizing again. One of the nice things about taking care of CML patients is that you really get to know them and, and take care of them um, over many, many years. Um, and, and as the CML doctor for these patients, knowing the toxicity, not just for selection, but just kind of following them throughout their course is really important um, because these toxicities, even if they didn't appear at the beginning, can appear at any time during treatment. And so for dasatinib, um, kind of the longer you're on it, the higher the likelihood is that you're going to have um, a pleural effusion. And so recognizing that obviously is important. Recognizing that there's some rare complications of dasatinib, such as pulmonary artery hypertension, is important. Um, Patients may be on nilotinib for a long time and then develop coronary artery disease or something like that. So 
Um, even though at diagnosis they may have seemed like appropriate candidates for nilotinib, that may change throughout their therapy. I think that the oncologist really plays a critical role in helping the CML patient um, and navigating their care with other specialties. So it's not infrequent, you know, that these patients, because they live with this disease for so long, are likely to encounter other medical problems. They'll be hospitalized. They may need to have surgery, um, et cetera. And so I think that educating the um, other specialties about what uh, the care for these patients means and that these patients are not, you know, severely immunocompromised and they can undergo usual routine surgery, all of these things are really important. So you're really... Um, I think that that's a really important role of the oncologist for CML patients in particular. So just um, switching gears a little bit to kind of what, what to look forward to in the future. So as um, folks were doing studies looking into TKI discontinuation, one theme they came up in the imatinib studies was that patients that had been treated with interferon and then with imatinib seemed to have more success with TKI discontinuation. And I think that that led to um, several studies trying to combine TKIs with interferon. So imatinib with the old interferons really wasn't very well tolerated, but now we have newer interferons, such as pegylated interferon um, or pegasus, and um, an, another interferon called ropeg interferon that we don't have available in the United States. And there's some ongoing studies trying to combine those interferons at low dose with the different tyrosine kinase inhibitors to see if um, patients get into deeper remissions, and then ultimately if those patients can discontinue therapy more successfully. There's a few other kind of newer agents that are on the horizon, perhaps. So I think um, one of the most exciting is ABLE001. So this is um, this inhibits the ABLE1 kinase in a different mechanism, and so it can potentially overcome um, a lot of TKI resistance. And that's going through clinical trials in several different settings. There's a rodotinib, which is another TKI, which has been um, studied outside of the United States and really does seem to have really um, excellent efficacy and superior to imatinib in rates of cytogenetic and molecular remission, but it has not really been studied in the U.S. And then there's been some studies combining nivolumab, a checkpoint inhibitor, in combination with desatinib in patients that have failed initial therapy so that's kind of an interesting strategy. We know from the transplant days that patients with CML are really susceptible to the immune effect of transplants. So it made sense to think about using checkpoint inhibitors. I think that that's been a study that's been difficult to accrue to simply because of um, there's low numbers of patients that really need that, and, and um, the TKIs are usually pretty well tolerated, and in, in the, the checkpoint inhibitors can be potentially more toxic. So we'll see what the results of those studies are to see if that's a compelling treatment approach. So remaining challenges in CML, a few things that I've mentioned and I'll mention again. Um, so the majority of patients with CML really do very, very well. Um, but like I've, like I've mentioned, you know, living with um, chronic TKI-related side effects can really be very challenging for some patients. Um, most patients, however, will not, unfortunately, remain off of TKIs for a long time. So although um, TKI discontinuation is definitely a possibility and something that I talk to my patients, um, it's important to keep in mind that there's the vast majority of patients will have to be on their TKI um, for the rest of their lives. They may have some treatment interruptions if they meet criteria for discontinuation, 
but um, but not everybody. So I think some things that I that I that I'd like to see improve in in my lifetime would be you know how to manage life on a tyrosine kinase inhibitor better. There's only so much we can do with supportive care. Um, I think probably the most challenging side effect to manage is fatigue. We have you know medications to give people with GI upset with with um, volume overload um, with GI side effects, et cetera, but fatigue can really be can be really be difficult. Um, and then how do we select patients and how do we increase the possibility of TKI discontinuation? So obviously if we can treat these patients, even if it's with somewhat toxic therapy initially, but then um, really increase our likelihood of TKI discontinuation, I think that that would be, that would be really exciting for our patients. Thank you so much. Um, I'm happy to take questions.